Welcome to the Highland Gospel Mission, a podcast to all nations. Each week, Pastor Keith will deliver a Holy Spirit-inspired message from Highland Southern Baptist Church to the rest of the world. If you have a Bible, we encourage you to read along and study the Word for deeper understanding. Now, here's Pastor Keith with this week's message. If you want to get your Bibles open up the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, we'll be looking at verse 12, from verse 12 through 19, before we jump into the fourth chapter. Uh, this is to give us a little bit of a background. Uh, I may revert back even a little bit farther, a little bit later, but uh, uh, for the time being, we'll go back this far just to kind of get our footing a little bit. The book of Hebrews was written to Jews, both Jewish believers and Jewish non-believers. Um, now, the Jewish believers we'll see being addressed here more than the non-believers, um, but um, who wrote this letter is completely in question. There are a lot of people have speculated to it. They, haven't, they didn't find one manuscript that had a signature on it, one manuscript that had an, an opening announcement in it. Um, so there's no proof of anything as to who wrote it. Uh, and the strange thing is, in order for something to be canonized, in order for a book in the Bible to be canonized, somewhere around 146 A.D., some crazy dude decided that Luke needed to be shredded. There were parts of Luke that were okay, parts of Luke that were not okay. So that started the process of people taking these manuscripts and taking them apart and keeping in it what they wanted to, taking out what they didn't want in it. Um, so, of course, the church leaders of the day said, this could get bad quick. So they decided that they need to sit down and officially canonize the books of the Bible. They had to fit three rules. It had to be either written by an apostle or by someone who was close to an apostle. Okay? Two, it had to match theology of the day. And three, it had to match the total culmination of all of the manuscripts that came together. Which is why we hear about these books like the book of Judas. You guys heard about that book? There's a book of Judas, and it says a whole bunch of inflammatory things in it. How many of those did you think they found? In all of history, in all of the New Testament, New Testament letters, we have over 5,000 manuscripts. 5,000 copies of the New Testament. Judas, one. Red flag? Red flag. So these requirements were to prevent people from sliding those books in that weren't intended to be in there. They had to. They had to meet that criteria. The book of Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament that does not fit all three criteria. The reason that it is in there and it doesn't fit all three criteria is because the one criteria is way minimalized by the other two because this book is theologically on it and it does something that really no other book in the bible does it takes old testament theology new testament theology and it connects the two together so it's not just knowledgeable about the new testament it's knowledgeable about the old testament and how the old testament and new testament connect to one another to move from promises to promises fulfilled the trouble the Hebrews had, which makes perfect sense because they were Jews. They had been, they had been uh, raised under a religious system that they were told repeatedly never to abandon. Um, and here's the odd thing. Same God, 
of the people of the Old Testament as the people of the New Testament. The people of the Old Testament refused to accept the New Testament out of fear of offending the God of the Old Testament. When in reality, since they're rejecting the fulfillment of the Old Testament, what they are trying not to do, they are actually doing. And that's what is being addressed in, these, in this particular part. So, the Word of God, the living Word of God, and the living God should take priority over anybody's historical religious preferences. So he's trying to teach these Hebrews, and to be honest with you, I think there's some characteristics we'll mention in here that are kind of human characteristics that we carry. Um, things about taking advantage of the Word, living out just enough faith to satisfy ourselves instead of living out the faith with the intent of satisfying God. Um, we do these things too. We may not do them exactly the same way, and they may not always be exactly the same things, but we as, as human beings do exactly the same thing. So in chapter 3, just to give us a little bit of a, a background, um, we'll start in verse 12, and he starts with the peril of unbelief. So this is how we know that he's also not, and he's not just talking to people who are, who are Jews who, who have trusted in Christ. He's also talking to people who are Jews who haven't, or Jews who, and this is where I say we're kind of like this, I think a lot of our culture is. They either have people who have not trusted in Christ, people who have trusted in Christ, or people who have kind of trusted in Christ. I mean, wouldn't you say our culture is pretty popular when it comes to the kind of? I mean, total commitment is something that's very difficult to find. Uh, and not total commitment to me or the church or, or to their job. Total commitment to Christ is where we have to be as individuals in order for us to be able to accomplish, um, I say us, the Lord accomplishes sanctification, but we have responsibility in that. Meaning, I'm, I said before, I'm not a Calvinist. Not. I believe you make your choices. I believe that you suffer the consequences of your choices. God may know that because he has foreknowledge, but he didn't make you make that choice. He didn't, he didn't write that in your destiny. That's not how this works. We pick up the Bible, we read it. When the Holy Spirit grabs us, we have one of two responses. Either, hey, I need to get right on that. Or two, quick, Move to the other verse. Maybe we'll forget God said it. What is unbelief? Is kind of belief unbelief? It is. Kind of pregnant, pregnant? So in chapter 3, start with verse 12. Take care, brethren lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The hardening of the deceitfulness of sin, what it had created was an outright rejection of God's word. We're talking about New Testament Jews here. So the outright rejection of God's word. It's, it, it is, you know, they, they rejected all of it. We reject parts of it. How much better does that make us than them? <laughs> We're no better than them if we don't accept all of it. 
They reject all of it. We've got to accept all of it. If we're not individuals who accept all of God's word, then we are outright rejecting not just the word, but we're also outright rejecting the one true living God. And I don't think, as human beings, we perceive what that really means. It's hard to even put it into context. The being who spoke everything that has ever been into existence into existence. Who could snatch your last breath at any second. Do anything that he wants to without limit. And we have the gall to look him square in the face and say no. I can promise you this. If we are individuals who are in the habit of saying no to God, then we will also be individuals who will not move forward in our faith will not move forward in our growth. If we don't know our gifts, we will never find our gifts. If we do know our gifts, we will not use our gifts. You detach a Christian from the word of God, you detach them from the nourishment that supplies life, not only to them, but to the people they come across. Because it's a matter of whether we believe that the gospel is something that we have been charged to take to the lost. Yet only 3% of Christians in the country do it. you get that? That's an old statistic. I need to look it up again because that statistic is probably 15 years old. 15, 15 years ago, Barnum did that study, and I brought it up in sermons many times before. They called a million people. Barnum don't call 100 people and do their statistics. They called a million people. A million. And they said, based on... One person a week. Do you regularly share the gospel with people? So the parameters, one person a week, being defined as, do you share the gospel on a regular basis? 3% of the million people said yes. I want you to get the concept behind this. That means you walk into a church, there's 100 people sitting in the pews, Three of them are telling people about Jesus at least once a week. Three. And do you know what really breaks my heart? Based on 33 years in ministry and all of my experience, what really breaks my heart is I know that to be absolutely true. I know it to be absolutely true. Ask yourself, how many people should tell about Jesus this week? How do we expect to be faithful in the many things that God has given us as responsibilities if we take the entire purpose that he came and died and throw it away by not ever sharing it with anybody? Folks, I'm telling you now. Christians should be telling people about Jesus and it shouldn't be based on a rule of one time a week. 
I told you before, when I would go knock on doors before, my goal was to knock on 10 doors a day. If I go out to knock on doors, I'll knock on 10 doors a day. Pretty proud of myself. I thought 10 doors a day was pretty good. Then the Lord said, why not 11? And he's not being mean. He's not trying to put stuff on me. He's, he was pointing out to me that I am placing my own limitations on me. So when I place limitations on me, I am not operating by faith in the capacity for which God can move things. But it's the capacity in which I can move things. You want to know why churches aren't doing big things? It's because they don't have the faith to do big things. It's a fact. Sit in a business meeting sometime. You can hear people bring up ideas that are absolutely genius. And it's going to cost a little money. No doubt that this was brought up under the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that it's something that God absolutely is pointing to. And you can spend 30 minutes affirming that through everybody giving their opinions, and it never fails. Hey, we need to do this. It's going to cost $5,000. What do they say? We don't have the money. We don't have the money. Like God is bound by the value of a dollar. If God tells the church to do it, it should do it. And that includes proclaiming the gospel as much as loving our wives and our husbands like God told us to. It doesn't matter what part that it falls into. The evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, that's a heart that does not spend time in the Word. It's a heart that doesn't accept it when it does spend time in the Word. And hopefully we'll get down to another affirmation of that. 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, I'm going to tell you straight up, I believe wholeheartedly in the eternal security of the believer. Wholeheartedly. Once somebody has truly given their life to Christ, that person will not give that gift up, and that person cannot have that gift taken from them. The Bible tells me there is one unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is rejection of Jesus Christ. The other one does not fall under that category. And, folks, the fact is this. I believe God's in control. Total control. He allows us to run with freedom under his control, but he still has total control. So if God gives somebody grace for the purpose of faith, do you think he would ever enter that relationship and give that in the first place if in his foreknowledge he knew that he was going to take it away? I mean, the point to this passage of Scripture is people have spent way too long trying to earn something that is unearnable. The Jews were guilty of it. We are guilty of it. Be honest. I've said this many times before, but be honest. I want to say that or not. Give me a minute to keep
the issue the Jews had was they had a belief in God, but they didn't really believe God. See what I'm saying? There's a big difference between having a belief in God and believing in God. We're going to get into some verses in a minute that talk about the Sabbath rest or the rest, the day of rest. The day of rest was something that God gave us to pull us out of the mundane scheduling listed requirements that we put ourselves into as human beings. Here's the way I'll form the question. Now maybe I won't. Maybe he'll give me a different way to phrase it in a minute. The Jews having that difficulty, though, with being able to accept with face value what it was that God was saying. And, and did they have to accept it from face value? I mean, how much faith, and I'm, I'm asking this cautiously because I'm not saying it didn't require faith, how much faith do you suppose that it could have took for someone who was a Jew to become a Christian? I mean, think of this. If I was to walk in there one Sunday and say, there's a new New Testament. How hard would it be for you to leave this one? Mm, these Jews were, I mean, they were, these Jews had, they had genealogy and history and faith, and those, those things were, were affirmed. But here's the deal, and the book of Hebrews did this very well. If you could take a Jew and show them how the Old Testament attached to the New Testament, the rules of sacrifice under the Old Testament, sacrifice being abolished under the perfect sacrifice, Christ, they would be able to attach the Old Testament Judaism to the New Testament. Now the fact is, and it mentions it in here as we read on, people in the Old Testament were saved by the exact same thing that people in the New Testament are saved by. Abraham believed God. He believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So what did Abraham have? Abraham had faith. Faith, that's what God wants. God tells me to do something, I do it. If I believe him, I believe in him. Faithfully, I'm going to step out and do it. The Hebrews were still looking to individuals to take sacrificial animals to the temple to sacrifice on the Day of Atonement once a year. The entire picture that's drawn, if you read past chapter 4, it gets very informative through chapter three into, or chapter 4 into chapter 5. It gets very informative about the connection between the Old Testament priest going through three different rooms or to a third room, through two rooms, into a third room that only the high priest was allowed to go in. Nobody else was allowed. The God of the Old Testament, as the Hebrews seen him, was someone to be feared out of um, well-being. Now, here people, the Bible says fear, the Lord, fear of the Lord is wisdom, right? But it's not talking about fearing him like a grizzly bear. It's talking about fearing him like your dad. It's talking about fearing him like, you know, if I'm going to do something... If, if when I was younger, if I was going to do something, I always took into account what, what the uh, cost was going to be. 
I knew when I was about to do something that was going to give me a whipping. I knew it. Uh, people, I mean, people would say all the time, oops, it wasn't an oops. I calculated that stuff in my head before I did it. I knew the cost. And I was willing to pay the cost because I thought the benefit was going to be worth it. That's the way that it works. Christ tore the curtain. How did kings operate back then? How many people were how many people were allowed to approach the throne of the king in those days? Trusted advisors and leaders. That was it. What did the creator of everything say? Partakers of Christ. We get to enter in to that throne room now. We get to stand in the presence of God, something that no king at this particular time would have ever allowed. God has shown the Jews in many different ways how he is different from the others. Now, the Old Testament, the Old Testament Jews still perceived God as a kind of a king because they had had kings. Kings hadn't worked out so well. Israel had fallen into sin so many times. It, it became redundant how many times God just was constantly getting on to these Jews because they were constantly just not believing him. They weren't listening to him. They weren't doing what he told them to do. And the consequences in the Old Testament, how many consequences do you need in order to be able to learn your lesson? Complain you're going to die because you're backed up to the Red Sea. Complain because you don't have water to drink. Complain because you don't have meat and God's only giving you bread. Complain because you say the Egyptians could take care of you better than the others could. God finally got fed up. And what did he do? Let's read for a little while. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, verse 15, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had, when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. This draws a very straight correlation between what is going on here and who we are in Christ. You see, when the Egyptians were given the promised land, the promised land was supposed to be the Israelites' place of rest. A place where they could gather food, a place where they could live in peace, a place where they could just be Israelites, God's chosen people. The promise, you believe me, and you get to enter into that rest. But when Joshua and Caleb came back, as they carried a bunch of grapes that was so big that it had to be tied on a pole carried by two men, What did the people say? Of course, Joshua and Caleb are going, let's do this. God's told us. He's given it to us. Let's go get it. And the other, other guys go, but those guys are big. I don't think we can pull it off. 
what part did belief in God play in somebody's response? I don't think that we can pull it off. This happened over and over and over in the Old Testament. God always, Israel's troops always moved when God said, I have given your enemy into your hand. That means that is a winning battle, no doubt about it. The question is, if I'm standing on the front line and God says, you're going to win this battle, do I believe him? Because as I look at the army on the other side, they have very real swords, very real shields, very real armor. And they're about to come at me with that sword. Do I believe him? We should. Because, folks, if there's one thing that kills us as individuals, it's logic. Adults, we lost, we lost a, a huge amount of faith at some point in our lives. I used to laugh because Jacqueline, she was a little bee girl. I'd tell her there's a pink elephant in the yard every time she'd run to the front door and look out for a pink elephant. She believed there was a pink elephant in the yard. And I don't think it, I don't think it would have mattered what it was. She would have ran to the window and looked for it. Why? Because she believed in me. We don't have any little kids in here, do we? Any little ones in here? You know, the whole Santa Claus concept, we, we can argue about whether Christians should be involved in that or not. You want to talk about that, it's fine. Your opinion, my opinion, I'm going to do what I want, you're going to do what you want anyway. So, Santa Claus. Some chimneys, not, a, not an unrealistic thing, right? But when all of our kids were little, you know what their question was? How does Santa get into a mobile home? The explanation? He sucks down to this little bitty skinny thing and goes right through the pipe. Oh. Oh. You believe a guy this big shrunk down to pipe this big and down into the down into the mobile home? Yes, they do. And how horribly creepy is it? This whole tooth fairy thing. You lose a tooth, put it under your pillow. Some creepy little creature flies into your bedroom in the middle of the night while you're sleeping. Takes the tooth out from under your pillow, shoves a dollar under there. And then the rest of the story, it takes that tooth and adds it to its castle that it's been making out of children's teeth. Tell me that's not creepy. What do little kids see? They don't think about the creepiness of, I mean, if some dude crawled in their window in the middle of the night, was reaching under their pillow for a tooth, I think that somebody would consider that creepy. To say the very least, creepy, right? But kids believe it. They believe it. This is why Jesus constantly said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like this child. as children we believe everything that God says but when we become adults all of a sudden everything has to make sense it has to add up the math has to come out clean where's faith in that did God tell us the truth is this the truth then why are we making it so hard 
It's not like he gave us some boundary lines of truth and we have to weave our way through to find it. It's not like 66 books, 100% authentic. You can read this, get this, and find out what God's thinking. It's an amazing resource. Nitroglycerin. How important is it to follow the instructions? And why, when we're handling something dangerous, we will look at that thing as dangerous and say, whoa, I'm either going to have to read up on this, I'm going to find some sucker to come in here and do it for me. Right? That shouldn't be the way we approach this. It shouldn't be the way we approach this. And, and I'll get to the why. We're going to jump because there's no way I'm going to get there by going verse to verse. Uh, so we're going to jump. Uh, let's see how far we jump. Let's go ahead and start in chapter 4, verse 1, and I'll just read uh, quite a bit. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Now, a lot of people get thrown off by this, and they think that he's talking about the seventh day, Sunday. Got a question for you. It's actually Saturday's the seventh day on our calendar. Back in the Jewish calendar, Sunday was actually the seventh day on their calendar. Um... This is not about you not working on Sunday. It's not about that. If, if that's honestly what you take from this, you've missed the entire point. I am not a huge believer in numerology, although I am a small believer in numerology. I mean, there are people who just go nuts with it. Yeah, I went through the Bible, picked every 28th letter from every 50th, uh, every 50th sentence, in the, in, in, and it said spaghetti. So God wants us all to eat spaghetti. It's I've actually seen people do that. They go through and just randomly, this many number of letters. No. <laughs> but, does the number seven represent something? Yes. We know that the number six represents man. We know that the number three represents the trinity. We know that the number seven represents perfection. We know that the number 12 represents completion. We know that the number 40 represents new beginnings. How do we know this? Because it's consistent across the board mentioned. How long was Jesus tempted? 40 days and 40 nights, a new beginning. That was the, that was the starter gun to his ministry. How long did it rain when, it, when the earth flooded? 40 days and 40 nights, wipe out all life on the planet, brands make a new beginning. You'll find that number 40 everywhere. Number seven, God's number. The rest that he's talking about is not physical rest. Spiritual rest. It's the inner peace that is provided by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in an individual who has an active relationship with the living God. You get that? Occasionally, I tend to come out of that. Anybody else? 
Occasionally we get scatterbrained. We'll even get to the point, and everybody does this. I don't care how seasoned a Christian is. Everybody does this. Life becomes compounded with finding solutions to problems. And some of the problems are out of our control. There is no solution to. It still prevents you from accomplishing your goals, so it's frustrating. Um, it's pretty easy to get mad at God because he didn't answer a prayer the way we wanted him to. So you guys don't believe God don't answer prayers, do you? He, he answers every prayer. Even no answer is an answer. You get that? Because his answers are yes, no, or not now. Yes, no, or not now. That's, that's the responses he typically will give us. But when we get in the place where we have pulled ourselves out of his spiritual rest, these things, now instead of being handled by faith in God, they're being handled by logic in an adult. Why do you suppose it is that we don't see churches doing big things anymore? And now, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about throwing parties. I'm talking about a thousand people added to the church in one day, three thousand people added to the church in one day, five thousand people added to the church in one day. When's the last time we've seen thirty people added to the church in one day? Doesn't happen. Now, have I seen faith move this church? Yes. Many, many times. And there are always a few scoffers. We don't have the money for that. It takes us three, four weeks. Love offerings is paid for. If people if if, if people see how what the money's being spent on is playing a part in the purpose that God has set us to, people will support that plan. But only if they're individuals who believe in faith. And only if they're individuals that believe that there is such a thing as a spiritual arrest. This goes right back to folks, again, a long time ago, me not being able to figure out why Jesus said, take your yoke upon me. For my yoke is light, and my burden is easy. Now, anybody who's read the Gospels, if you were standing on the outside looking in, would you say that Jesus' life was easy? So even as a young Christian, this kind of threw me for a loop. I'm thinking, you are the second person of the Trinity. You are responsible for over 7 billion people on this planet right now. You've been responsible for the billions and billions of people that have been on this planet for the last 6,000 years. You came here to die. Not just die, but you came here knowing that they were going to get so mad at you that they were going to arrest you, nail you to a tree, and kill you. You knew this. But he says, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is light and my burden is easy. And I rattled my brains thinking, how is this possible? And the conclusion was this. When we live in the Sabbath rest of God, we're untouchable. I don't care what you call me if I'm in that rest. I'm more sure about the promises God gave me than I am about your stinking opinion. That's where we find ourselves when we enter that rest. But we can't enter that rest by trying to follow rules. Christianity is not about rules. The Jews were following rules. 
use this a lot, so forgive me. Following rules. How many of you guys, when you do something obedient, you feel pretty good about yourself? Think God looks at you a little better that day, maybe? God's so proud of me because I did this. And how many of you think that you did something bad in life that made God look at you and say, I like you a little less for that? It's not possible. Try to put yourself theologically in Jesus' shoes. Jesus says, I have forgiven you, past, present, and future. So your sins of your past are forgiven. Your sins of today are forgiven, and your sins of tomorrow are forgiven. If you're genuinely a Christian, you won't take that for granted. But you'll certainly take advantage of it, as we should. Because when we do think God tells us not to, it makes us feel bad. And when we, when we repent to him and we realize that that forgiveness is there, we don't have to carry that weight around with us. He doesn't want us to carry that weight around with us. Because that is not a light yoke and that is not an easy burden. You see, when, when I'm in that spot where usually happens right after I come out of the bad situations. The Lord just comes in and kind of straightens your mind up and ties it all in. It's like, okay, Lord, well, once you get to that point, peace that passes all understanding, strength beyond imagine. Um, we realize, and I think that that's always what picks us back up, that it is when we are weak that we are strong. Because when we get weak, we stop doing things in our power. We start doing them in his. Sabbath rest. I don't care what, how somebody responds if I tell them about Jesus. They get mad at me if they want to. It's that to me. If I don't tell them about Jesus, they will go to hell. If I do tell them about Jesus, they might go to hell. Which of the two is the best choice? Read this verse. Verse 12. Let's do 11 and 12, then I'll, I'll close this. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall uh, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow. How many people do you think become Christians because of the good stuff? Just want to go to heaven, right? I mean, that's, a lot of people just want to go to heaven. If that means they got to trust in Jesus to get there, that's fine. They'll trust in Jesus to get there. Right? When it comes to sanctification, that's, that's an entirely different thing. The word of the Lord, it doesn't always provide you with the fuzzy feel good. It does. And we need to live in that spot where we are in that Sabbath rest. But the fact is, being obedient, the word of God can be pretty painful. When it talks about, when it talks about piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, that's talking about sanctification. It's talking about the word of God being sharp enough to cut the flesh away from the inner being. It is sanctification. That's the process it's talking about. 
So when we open the Word of God, we should at least know, and I even come to desire it. Open the Bible. Don't look for stuff that just gains your knowledge. Look for stuff that hurts. That's where your growth's at. Start taking the issues that you know you have in life and use those as a theme for your Bible study. I can promise you, you will not come out of the other side of that unscathed. But it has everything in the world to do with who we are and representing Christ to the people that are out there. And there are too many churches, even Southern Baptist churches, that are teaching legalism, and there is no person that has ever, nor will there ever be, a person who will get themselves to heaven by their own standards. It's not going to happen. Let's say that 3% number is accurate. We bring more people into this church and we start teaching them. What are we not going to teach them? Well, we certainly aren't going to teach them how to share the gospel, are we? Not unless we just happen to have one of the 3% of the people that do it that, ha that is teaching the class. Then there's a case where we may actually have. But if 97% of the church is not actively sharing the gospel, our habits caught are taught. I mean, you know, when you were growing up, your parents said, do as I say, not as I do. How much clout did that carry? Didn't carry much clout. It comes down to this, folks. If we're going to be Christians, I mean, this is no different, folks. I mean, but what if I said, you know what, I'm I'm going to be a preacher, and I'm going to set my I'm going to set my own uh, visiting schedules, and I'm going to set my own times, and I'm going to, and I don't do but maybe 25 percent of the responsibilities of a pastor. How well does it go over? Would you would you be happy with your pastor if he only did like 25 percent of the pastor's job? and scheduled himself to do things that he enjoyed that may even be sinful things, would that be okay? That wouldn't be okay, wouldn't it? Would it? So why is that okay in Christianity? Why is it okay for us to have very clear instructions laid out by God and then for us to pick through those instructions and say, I'll do it my way, when I want, how I want. Do you think that it works well if we are individuals that even think that we're capable of telling God no? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Has everything in the world to do with where we are in Christ? Has everything in the world to do with the peace and the happiness that we experience in Christ? That life at its fullest, it's found in his rest. That's where it's found. you're here today, you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, please don't leave this place without talking to me. If you're not comfortable coming up here talking face-to-face, -face, uh, hang out for a little bit if you can. We have to sit in the front and the back and shout at each other. I'm okay with that too. can't save you, but I can certainly take the time to explain to you the one who can. But if you're here today and you're a believer, I want you to know that God's intent for you is not to live life in chaos. His intent is not for you to live life vain. Because the individuals who think that they're earning their way to heaven or that they're securing their way to heaven through their actions, they're lost of all in high weeds. Don't allow yourself to fall into the trap 
of the list of expectations on Christians. Only give that authority to God because he'll give it to you as you need it, when you need it, and as many as you need. He won't give you more than you can handle, and we will give ourselves more than we will handle. So there's a big difference, folks, between living in Christ and living with Christ. Huge difference. Live in Him. That's where the key to everything is at. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions about becoming a Christian, discipleship, or if you have prayer requests, you can visit us at facebook.com forward slash highlandsouthernbc. Have a blessed week and go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Highland Gospel Mission was produced by Zach Link with preaching by Keith Barron. Music provided by Pixabay under Creative Commons.